Um, so really quickly today, there's outlines in the back if you don't have one, if you didn't get one. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. If you want to turn to Daniel chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 1 through 7. So like I said, we came here to hear Jesus' word, amen? That's the only reason. Well, that's not the only reason we come here, but that should be the main reason, right? To equip the saints so you guys can go out there and evangelize God's word to other people. So the introduction, Daniel, the authorship of the book of Daniel, and you have to do an introduction to this book. It's very necessary because this book plays a huge part in the history of Israel, okay? And then also the Gentile world of Babylon. The authorship consists of an overwhelming evidence, guys, that Daniel is the author. With Daniel referring to himself uh, in the, uh, repeatedly throughout chapter 7 through 12 in the first person, Daniel's name means God is my judge, amen? And that's what Daniel stood for, right? He wasn't going to let anyone else take his focus off God. He was only going to be judged by God and not by man. He was going to go ahead and do what God wanted him to do and not be persuaded or compromised for what men wanted him to do, amen? And that's how we should be as well in our walk with the Lord. Bible, the Bible tells us in the first chapter, verse 3, that Daniel and the young Israelites were the best that Israel had to offer, these were men who came most likely from a genealogy of a royal or, or noble standing within Israel. These were the best men. They were good looking. They were tall, they handsome, whatever. However you want to look at it, it was the best of the best that Israel had to offer. Okay? Bible also tells us, that, uh, the Bible does not tell us, what it doesn't tell us is who Daniel's parents were, whether or not he had siblings. If he was married, he was really young, but hey, in that culture, you could have been married at a very young age. Um, if he had his own family even, because it could have been possible even at that young age. But here's what we do know about Daniel. Daniel was born in 622 BC. Daniel was taken into captivity, guys, when he was about 16 or 17 years old. Some of our youth group is that age right now. As a teenager, he was devout in living his life out in worship and without compromise towards his God. And we know that by the later chapters and the way he stood in his relationship with God. He was a praying man. We know that from later chapters as well when you read through Daniel that, and obviously that's what got him thrown into the lion's den. He trusted God with his life and he didn't trust men. He heard the voice of God clearly, but here's what's, what's, what's the main point. Not only did he hear the voice of God clearly, but he listened to God and then he did what God wanted him to do, right? It's one thing to hear the voice of God, but do we do what God wants us to do? Daniel did. He served in high government positions within Babylon and the Persian empires. You'll see that as you read through the book of Daniel. And according to the book's own testimony, it's a record of Daniel's life, but it also has prophetic re revelation given to Daniel from about 605 BC to 536 BC, a span, guys, of about 70 years. Okay, he was hearing from God and doing God's work. The book of Daniel, the outline, kind of is broken down like this. Daniel's divided up into two themes. You have the traditional approach, which is chapters 1 through 6, and their historical narrative. So it's the history. And the chapters 7 through 12 are prophetic visions. Uh, there's also the linguistic approach. During the translations, the scribes with this book decided to uh, keep it in its original languages. So chapter uh, 1 through chapter 2, verse 4, is in Hebrew, uh, the language of the Israelites. And then you have from 2.4 to 7, it's in Chaldean, also known as Aramaic, uh, which was spoken widely amongst the ancient empires and the ancient cultures. 
chapters 8 through 12 go back to Hebrew. Now, there's many different, uh, many different commentaries on why that is. I'm not going to go into that during this message. If you want, you can look into why they were written that way. But this is how it's broken down. When these events take place, Daniel's lifespan from 622 to 530 BC, biblical characters, and this was very interesting, biblical characters living at the same time as Daniel were, um, were King Josiah, the prophet Jeremiah, and the prophet Ezekiel. What's really interesting too, if you want to look at secular figures, um, Confucius was living at this time. What that tells us is, hey guys, in the Bible, these are real stories. These are real places, right? We have dug up archaeological finds that have evidence that the Bible exists. You know, the Book of Mormon, they've never found anything written in it that actually exists as far as cities, right? They don't exist and peoples and demographics. So guys, we can trust the Bible. Amen? Amen. So, it also has a prophetic nature. The book of Daniel is the old is the book of Daniel is to the Old Testament what Revelation is to the New Testament. Again, the book of Daniel is to the Old Testament what Revelation is to the New Testament. It reveals a lot about God and the future. The book gives us a foreshadowing of the salvation provided by Christ that God has provided an escape from a fiery death as he did with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, right? It also gives us detailed prophecy for Daniel's future. See, it was Daniel's future that the book is talking about, but it's our past now, right? And we've seen it come true. And it also gives us, though, the book of Daniel, a glimpse in the later chapters into our future still to come in the return of Christ, right? In the book of Revelation, it ties in. But guys, you know what that tells me? If in Daniel's time, God was giving them prophecy and it was coming true, I can believe that the prophecy it gives for us to come true, it's going to come true. Amen? We can have faith in that. The historical context is the Israelites uh, fled Egypt into the promised land. And they were without a human king for 400 years, right? When they entered the promised land. Okay, but then at, at that point, after the 400 years, God raises up human kings. The first three, if you guys remember, were Saul, David, and then Solomon. Okay, and if you remember, God was their king, and he wanted, he, of course, he intended to remain their king, but they wanted a human king. Do you remember that? And God said, I'm going to give them what they want through his permissive will. You want a human king? Here's Saul. Okay. From, nine, from uh, 971 to 931 BC, 12 tribes of Israel are united under King Solomon. So that was the last time the, the nation of Israel was united as one kingdom under Solomon. 931 BC. Israel's now been split, as we approach Daniel's time, into two different kingdoms. The kingdom of Judah has two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. The other ten are the northern kingdom called Israel. Each kingdom goes on to have about, and this is interesting, 19 successive kings on each side, the northern and the southern. The southern kingdom of Judah had about, so get this, out of about the, this be exact actually, out of the 19 kings the southern kingdom of Judah had, how many, you guys, how many of you think were good kings? There's only four or five, I believe. Four, four to five to six, I wrote here. Five to six good kings out of all those kings. Why? It's because we're obedient to God, and then God tells us to remain obedient, and then the world gets to us, and we start to, we start to flee away from God. We start to forget about God. That's why he tells them over and over and over what to do. That's why, guys, I will never look at the Bible and read a chapter or read a verse and say, oh, you know what, I've, I've read that before, I'm good. Right? You guys ever say that? You should never say that, right? Let's keep coming to church. Let's keep reading our Bibles. Let's keep focusing because it what helps keeps our eye, what helps us keep our eyes on God. Amen. 
And the kingdom of Judah, so then the northern kingdom, again, had many kings. None of them were good. They had about 18, 19 kings. Not one was a good king. And when I say a good king, that's a king who started off good, being obedient to God, and finished his life being obedient to God. Not one. And the northern kingdom came to an end, and it was conquered by Assyria in 722 B.C. And the kingdom of Judah, the southern Israel, remained. So that's where Daniel came out of, the southern kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar had three battles with Judah. He had one in 605 B.C., one in 597 B.C., and one in 588 B.C. When he first came and he he was at war and trying to take Jerusalem, he had to be called back because his his father was dying, and he wanted to make sure that he got back. Uh, He traveled 500 miles uh, in, I think it was two weeks. And that was incredible when you're riding on horseback. He did something incredible. Nebuchadnezzar was a great military leader, but he was ruthless, and, and uh, he just was relentless, and he travels back. So he didn't ransack at that time in 605 B.C. Jerusalem, but in the other two battles eventually, he would not only leave it in ashes, Jerusalem, and destroy everything, but pretty much depopulate um, Jerusalem, the tribe of Judah and Israel. So if you guys have an outline, uh, before we start, I'm going to go through the outline. What we'll see today, uh, the first point is there, is there is our free will and God's perfect will. We must know God's perfect will for us through his word, and we must choose to do God's perfect will. Put nothing else, guys, on earth before your devotion and obedience to Jesus. We need to do God's will so we don't need to be disciplined. There's a typo there on your outline, by the way. Uh, The world will come to attack the places of God and the people of God. Guys, it's not when it's coming, it's when it's coming. Amen? Amen. We know it's coming. Satan's goal is not to take objects created by men for worship of God, but to take God-created men from the worship of God. A king or a government, guys, can enslave us physically, but it can never enslave us spiritually unless we let it. Amen? Point number three, we must make sure to use our gifts and talents for the Lord. Parents and the church must encourage their youth and their children To use their talents for the Lord's purpose or the world will try to repurpose their gifts for its purpose. Point number four, are we close enough to God that we influence the world around us? Or is our relationship with God a lukewarm one where the world influences us? Only a devoted and unwavering relationship with Jesus will give us the power to impact the world for Christ. Amen? And then point number five, our identity, guys, is not in the name. The names that you were given by your parents, that's not your identity. Okay, but it's the name we praise, serve, and believe in. The name of Jesus is our identity. Amen? That's who we represent, guys. It's not about our name. It's about his name. Amen? So in that, let's go ahead and uh, look at the verses. Again, point number one, there is our free will and God's perfect will. We must know God's perfect will for us through his word, and we must choose God's, to do God's perfect will. Put nothing else on earth before your devotion and obedience to Jesus. We need to do God's will so we don't need to be disciplined. <clears throat> Let's read verse 1 of Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And verse 2, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim of Judah into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of God, lowercase g, to the house of his God, lowercase g, and he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. 
Now, Jehoiakim, a little bit of history about Jehoiakim. He was the, the, he was the son of King Josiah. Josiah was the last good king of Judah. So remember we talked about, like I said earlier, there was only five or six. Well, Josiah was one of them, uh, Jehoiakim's father. Daniel was taken into cap- captivity by King Nebuchadnezzar in 605 BC, the first siege, siege on Judah and Babylon, by Babylon. Josiah was king, so to give you an idea, Josiah was king from 640 to 608 BC. So Daniel lived from 622 to 530. So Daniel, as a teenager, would have seen this righteous ruler and this righteous king. He would have lived under his reign. His parents would have lived under Josiah's reign. Um, And then Daniel, at the same time, after Josiah was gone, would have lived under Jehoiakim's evil reign. Okay? Jehoiakim was not a good king. In verses 1 through 2, we see two perspectives here. The very first thing we see is the secular perspective, which is from a world point of view. Right? History. Well, Nebuchadnezzar seizes Jerusalem. Right? But then we see a theological point of view here in verse 2. Look at verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand, into his hand, Nebuchadnezzar's, with some of the articles of the house of God. So the first thing as a Christian, why would God hand over Judah and Jehoiakim? Why would he do that? Right? Well, Jehoiakim was evil, like I said earlier. And the, and the word tells us so. Second Chronicles, I'm going to read you 36.5. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. It says right there in the Bible, he was, he was an evil king. He did evil in the sight of God from a young age. Daniel's already been in Babylon and, Babylon, and Jehoiakim burns God's word. So again, here's to his character and his relationship with God. We read this in Jeremiah 36, 27 through 30. Now, after the king had, talking of Jehoiakim, now after the king had burned the scroll with the words of which Baruch had written at the instruction of Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, take yet another scroll, Jeremiah, and write on in all the former words, which I wrote in the first scroll, which you gave to Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and he burned. Imagine if God has to say that about a king. Do it again because he went and burned it the first time. I I don't know about you guys, but you never want to burn the word of God. Amen? Never. So then he says, God says, And you shall say to Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Thus says the Lord, you have burned this scroll, saying, And this is what Jehoiakim said, Why have you written in it that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land and cause men and beasts to cease from here? Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, He shall have no one sit on the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out to the heat of the day and the frost of the night. So God had repeatedly, and literally here, he's repeatedly telling Jehoiakim, turn from your ways, repent, and do what I'm telling you to do. Turn away from your sin. God had repeatedly told Jehoiakim and the nation of Israel, right? Honor him, worship him, obey him, and they did not, right? And that's, right, when we're up here preaching, that's what we're telling you guys. Honor him, worship him, obey him, right? And sometimes we don't. They were filled with immorality in Israel, lawlessness, idolatry, worshiped the gods of their neighboring pagan religions, and defiled God's temple. Completely disregarded the warnings of God's patience and God's mercy, which had been bestowed upon him. God is long-suffering, but he will not suffer always, amen? And then Psalm 103, uh, 8 and 10 
I'll read to you. The Lord is merciful and gracious, David says, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, not punished us according to our iniquities. Guys, sometimes we may think, right, when we're going through hard times, and sometimes it can be the discipline of God. And we're thinking, you know what? Is God a loving God? Because things are so hard, and I think he deals with me harshly, right? But consider all the things we've done that God has tolerated and looked at, right? God loves you, and God shows you an abundant amount of mercy, and me too, over time. Guys, he's abundant. Abundant means growing in mercy, right? He does it constantly with us. With us. He loves us, amen? So God gave them into the hand of the Babylonians. So now we know why he handed them over. It was discipline for their disobedience. Warren Wiersbe says this, Wise and powerful is our God that he can permit men and women to make personal choices and still accomplish his purposes in this world. When he isn't permitted to, look at this, when he isn't permitted to rule God, he will overrule but his will shall ultimately be done in the end and he will be glorified. Amen? Ultimately, guys, his will will be done. It's amazing throughout the Bible that we see God's will, or that we see God's, yeah, God's will intertwined with man's will. I always say this, man's will, God's will. They're intertwined and overlapping like this throughout the whole Bible. The great mystery is how much of it is our free will and God's permissive will where he allows us to do things and how much is God's absolute perfect will which he intended for us to do. <clears throat> so free will, guys, we're going to look at free will, right? Free will, we read in John seven seventeen. if anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority when he was talking to the Pharisees. Now, what he's saying here, if you look at it, if anyone, what, wills to do his will. Guys, we have a choice to do his will. Israel had a choice. Jehoiakim had a choice. It wasn't like God just overrode him. He had a choice. He made the wrong choice and then God had to. Amen? And God used Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar to do that. In Joshua 24, 15, for those of you who take notes, I will always read the scripture so you guys can take notes for those of you who study later. Joshua 24, 15. And it seems evil to you to serve the Lord. Choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. Again, there, choose, guys. Whether the gods... Whether the gods with the lowercase g, which your father served, who were across the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you dwell. Joshua says, but as for me and my house, you guys all know this, what? I will serve the Lord. <clears throat> guys, we have an opportunity. God gives it to us. He allows us. In a way, you could say he tolerates our free will. He allows us to choose. And then in Ezekiel 28, 13 through 15, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Now here, you were in, he's talking to, actually, I, I skipped one thing here. Lucifer had free will. You guys know that, right? I mean, obviously we know that. So he even gave the angels free will as well. Again, intertwined, God's will and our will. We read in Isaiah 14, 12 through 14, talking of Lucifer. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, listen to this, I will. What? He wills. I will ascend to heaven, into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Satan again. I will also sit in the mount of the congregation on the farther sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud and hear this. I will be like the most high. Mormons believe that. They believe like they'll be like the most high. 
They'll have their own planet one day, their own goddesses, their own uh, godchildren, and they will be a god of their own planet. And I've said that to many Mormons before. You know you want the same thing Lucifer asked for, right? And did, and was thrown out of heaven for, right, guys? But he allowed him to choose. And then in Ezekiel 28, 13 through 15, uh, this begins to talk about the king of Tyre and then transforms into what we believe is speaking of Lucifer. You were... You were in Eden, the glory of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardius, the sardius, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald. You were covered with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created. And get this till iniquity, iniquity was found in you. Choose me or choose you is basically what Satan has. And he chose himself, right? Do we choose ourselves? Are we choosing God with everything we do? Guys, let's put God first in our lives, amen? And then the angels had free will to follow Satan, right? In Revelation, to follow Lucifer. Revelation 12, 4, we read this. His tail drew a third of the stars, speaking of the angels, drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon, Satan, stood there before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour the child as soon as it was born. Guys, the angels were given free will to follow Lucifer. Again, free will, man's free will as well. The angel, um, and then Adam and Eve, did they have free will? They did. And you think of it in, in a theological perspective is, God put the tree there, but then gave him a choice. All he had to do was not put the tree there and not give him a choice, right? But he did. Free will's been there from the beginning. They were to choose, told to choose any tree to eat from, but just not that one tree, but they were given the free will to do that. And guys, because you can't have true love without free will, right? You guys have met my wife and I was standing here. If I was standing here and I'm greeting you at church and I'm saying, hey, my wife loves me and I'm holding her by the neck and she's having trouble breathing. Yeah, I love him. I love him, right? Be like, that's not love. He's forcing her to love him, right? And with God, he gave Adam and Eve free will to choose to love him, right? And he gives us the same free will. So here's God's perfect will, an example. God's perfect will for Israel, King David, the king God chose. God's permissive will, King Saul, I'll let you have what you guys have chosen. God's perfect will, the innocence of man in Adam and Eve. That was his perfect will for them to be innocent, right? For them to be perfect, for them not to die. God's permissive will, the fall of man, and now we die, and death has come upon us. He gave Adam and Eve the choice in the tree, and that's what brought it upon them and us. God's perfect will is what? The salvation of men. In 2 Peter 3, 9, we read this, the Lord is not slacking concerning his promise as some count slackness, but he's long suffering toward us. And get this, here's the words, not willing that any should perish, perish, but that all should come to repentance. All guys, and all means what? All, amen, everybody. First Timothy 2, three through four. Dave might've just went through this. I think he did. Our Savior who desires all, all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. And all is what? All. So that's God's desire. That's God's perfect will. God's permissive will is the condemnation of men, where he allows us to either choose him or choose ourselves. Romans 2.5. 
we read this, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself in the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Romans 12, 2, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and what? The perfect will of God. Amen? So Jehoiakim and Israel, the people of Judah knew that they were to be holy. For Josiah, their king was holy. That was before Jehoiakim. That was the perfect will of God. But with their free will, they chose idol worship and wickedness. God's permissive will allowed them to do so. And God's sovereign will gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar because of the Israelites' disobedience. You guys see that? That's why it happened. That's why we read that there. No other gods before him, guys. We should have no idols. Anything that means more, or you prioritize in your life more than Jesus, it could be your job. It could be sports. I mean, I know people go to the gym. They work out seven days a week. Some people like five hours a day, right? It could be, it could be fitness and health, and you spend 50, 25 hours a week reading about all kinds of, of ways to treat your body and to live longer, right? It can, be, it can be so many things that take us away from time we might spend with God. It could be your car. It could be your 401K. It could be your retirement. It could be your kids. It can be your kids or your wife or your husband can be something you prioritize before God and can become an idol. You know, many times in church, um, as pastors, we see wives come without their husbands, right? And then sometimes I've had many wives tell me, I haven't, I, I'll ask them, I haven't seen you in church in a while, right? And they'll say, well, I can't get my husband to come. And so, you know, we skipped a couple weeks, but I'm coming next week or I'm here today. Ladies, if your husband won't get off the couch and he wants to watch you, come see Jesus and come meet with Jesus. Amen. Remember, it's your relationship with Jesus, not his relationship with Jesus. Amen. And the same for the husbands. Come to church. You have an individual relationship with Jesus. When you stand before Jesus um, and you give an account for everything you've ever said and done, you're not going to be able to go, well, my, my husband, though, he was watching the football game and I wanted to go to church, Jesus. And he'll say, I'll deal with him. What did you do with my son? Amen? So come to church, guys. Don't wait for your partner. Come to church. Amen? And don't put your kids before God. And I'll never forget this. My, my oldest daughter, uh, many of you know her, uh, when she was about um, 16, she was going to youth group. She was very plugged into church. Um, you, know, you know me and my family. For me and my house, like I just read, we will serve the Lord. And I'll never forget, my wife was driving back from youth group, and they had a conversation where my daughter had... Uh, 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 be, uh, built a relationship with a young man and they started to like each other. And what she told my wife, my wife got home, and my wife was weeping. And my wife said, I said, what happened? She goes, on the way back from youth group, your daughter just told me that, you know, she really likes this guy and, and, and she wants to be with him. And if she has to leave to do that, she'll leave and she's no longer going to go to church and she's no longer going to go to youth group. And so she was establishing her own faith, unfortunately in the wrong direction, being disobedient like we're reading. And my wife said, and the tone that she's telling me in this was very disrespectful. And my wife's like, you need, Doug, you need to go in there and handle this. Like, go talk to your daughter. 16 at the time, I remember I walked in there and I talked to her and I said, you don't talk to your mom that, that, like that. You honor your father and your mother. And one of the things I told my daughter is I said, hey, look, for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, period, the end. And I said, and I want you to know something in my house. And this was the hardest thing I've ever said to any of my children to this day. I told my daughter, I love Jesus more than I love you. And I want you to know that. And your mom comes first as well before you. And I said, the bottom line is you need to honor God and you need to honor us. If you're not willing to do that, 
I'll help you pack. You know, and the thing is, is now, look, did I say the right thing? I'm not saying that you go home and you tell your kids to leave, okay? That's not what I'm saying. But guys, I meant it when I said it. Hardest thing I've ever had to say because a lot of times we put our children before God. Have you ever seen so many people said, my whole life is my children, right? And I know sometimes they're just saying that and it's an expression, but maybe sometimes people mean that, you know? He has to come before everything, amen? Amen. So guys, don't put your kids before God. Choose God's perfect will. Guys, and what that means is don't commit adultery. Don't be a thief. Don't be a liar. Don't murder. Jesus came and said, if you have hatred for another man in your heart, you've already hated on him. You've committed murder, right? But forgive, guys. Love. Have joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. You know what those are, right? Amen. Someone said in the back, fruit of the Spirit. Amen, guys. That's what we should have for God. The exhortation here, guys, is sin brings judgment when it's accompanied with unrepentance, okay? So if you have sin and it's unrepentant, it brings discipline from God. And that's what was happening to Joachim, Jehoiakim here. Disobedience to God has a price, and it has a huge price. If you think about it, Jehoiakim was the leader of that nation. Daniel and them were devout to God. They were, they were righteous, right? But they fell into captivity because of Jehoiakim's decisions. And we see that throughout the Bible, right? Your decisions will affect your kids. Your decisions will affect your wives, men, right? And same with the the wives. Guys, let's honor God because it doesn't just affect us. Disobedience to God has a price. We read in in, uh, 1 Corinthians, I believe, yeah, 11 through 31. But if we judged ourselves truly, now this is what Paul's saying, if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So what he's saying is, before you have to be disciplined from God, do the right thing, right? What do I, I always, how many, how many parents are out there, right? What do you tell your kids sometimes? Hey, do the right thing so I don't have to punish you. Do the right thing so I don't have to. So guys, do the right thing, amen? And that's what Paul's saying. Do God's will, so we don't have to be disciplined. Uh, that was point number one. So there is our free will and God's perfect will. We must do God's perfect will. We know his will through his word, and we must choose God's perfect will. Put nothing on earth before your devotion and obedience to Jesus. We need to do God's will, so we don't need to be disciplined. Amen? Amen? All right, you guys still with me? Point number two. The world will come to attack the places of God and the people of God. If it's not... It's not when the attack, it's not if the attack is coming, it's when the attack is coming. Satan's goal is not to take objects created by men for worship of God, but to take God-created men from worship of God. A king or a government can enslave us physically, but it can never enslave us spiritually unless we allow it to, guys. So if you look at verse 2, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand went Israel, which we just covered, and then it says, with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, Shinar, or whatever, uh, to the house of his God. So Shinar is in the kingdom of Babylon. So Nimrod was a descendant of Noah. Many of you probably know the name Nimrod. Obviously, we know the name of Noah. Um, Nimrod, a descendant of Noah, uh, Nimrod, the descendant of Noah, begins his kingdom here uh, in Shinar. In Genesis 10, 9 through 10, we read this. He was a mighty hunter, speaking of Nimrod. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. 
Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord, and the beginning of his kingdom was in Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. In Genesis 11, 1 through 4, we read this. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of, here it is, Shinar. And they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and asphalt and mortar. And they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad. So this is where the Tower of Babel was. And that's where we get the word Babylon comes from the word Babel. Babylon is mentioned, guys, over 250 times in the Bible. There's only one city mentioned more than Babylon in the Bible. Do you guys know what that city would be? Amen. Amen, Rob, brother Rob. Jerusalem. So in scripture, the two cities actually symbolize two loyalties, two gates and two ways and two masters. Babylon, guys, represents the world and the city of man and evil and separation from God, where Jerusalem represents the righteous, represents righteousness and the city of God to be set apart for God's purpose. Completely two different things in contrast. God through Jeremiah warned Judah it would be conquered and Jerusalem destroyed. Its descendants would be taken away by Babylon. So we're seeing it come true. Jeremiah warned them to repent or God would deliver Judah for 70 years into the hands of the Babylonians. And that's what we're seeing happening right now at the time of Daniel. Guys, and it came true. And again, like I said, knowing that this came true back then, I know that the revelations that are in Daniel going forward for me will also come true and for you guys, amen? Knowing Babylon represents the world, the first thing we see in verses one through two is that what? So here comes Nebuchadnezzar. Here's gonna, he's gonna ransack Jerusalem. He's gonna take captives into his custody and then he's gonna take articles of God. So the first thing we see is that the world comes to attack the places of God, okay? And the people of God. And we've seen that here in our time, right? When COVID came, what did they do? We're shutting down the church. They came to attack the place of God. And then what's the second thing they do? You can't even worship. We don't want you singing to your Lord. You need to shut it down, right? They attack the people of God. And then look, this is a real conversation. I remember, and I, I, it was kind of surreal. You know, when Pastor Dave called me and said, hey, look, we're going to keep the church open and I'm going to preach and I'm going to go to jail if I have to. And he said, Josh, if I go to jail, you need to get up there and preach. And if Josh goes to jail, Doug, you're up. And if Tim goes to jail, you're up. We didn't talk about after Tim. I don't know. <laughs> but here's the reality, guys, is the reality is I'm sitting there having this conversation and I'm thinking, I'm willing to go to jail. Dave was willing. I'm willing. I really had to sit down and say, this is crazy, but I'm going to go to jail for, for Jesus. Amen? Those are real decisions, guys. So when they come to attack the place of God, we must stand in Christ. And it's not if the attack's coming, if the attack's coming, it's when. And guys, at times it can seem like in our world, right? Government change, new president, whatever it may be, right? The world has rejected Christ that evil is winning. It can seem like that. Or it has already won. Think about the Israelites as their temple was destroyed and their nation was no more. And their young men, the best of Israel, was taken into captivity. Pretty harsh. They were probably thinking, is this it? Has evil won? And then to see the articles of God in the temple just taken out, just removed, right? They must have thought, wow, how come God let that happen? Why did he let that happen, right? But we saw from the, the first verse, why? 
Israel thought Nebuchadnezzar had won. But later we know, if you guys have read ahead in Daniel, he takes it all back. You guys remember, he takes it all back, God. God's won, guys. Victory is in Jesus Christ. It's done. God will always win. Amen? And we can rest in that. And times right now, guys, we can believe that sometimes evil's winning. Uh, guys, I remember, there might not, my son sometimes will ask me, Dad, what do you think the, you know, when you, the United States is going to be like in 20 years or in 30 years? And 50, I tell him, son, there might not be a United States in 50 years, right? But we don't want, that's the reality, right? We don't know what the future holds and the way things are going. And, and people... People want what the, like I said, what the world has to offer. They don't want what Christ has to offer anymore. And how many nations survive without God, right? How many have come to ruins without God? God, guys, wins in the end. Jesus will judge every nation, kingdom, and man in all of time for their actions, right? Everyone will give an accountability. Revelation 20, 12, we read this. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in these books. This is our hope, guys, right? Christ in his love and his return in wrath and his justice towards evil, but most of all, his redemption and his salvation. Guys, it's important for us to tell people about God, but remember, always be focusing on our hope ahead. Don't worry about the circumstances here. Amen? So Nebuchadnezzar had some of the articles of God that he took. Point number two, the world will come to attack the places of God and the people of God. It's not if the attack's coming, it's when. Satan's goal, guys, remember, is not to take these articles and objects uh, that men use for the worship of God, but it's to take God-created men from the worship of God. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar did. He said, I'm going to take you from your place where you worship God, and I'm going to make you worship my God. You're going to stop worshiping your God. And that's what Satan wants. He wants you to stop worshiping him. He wants you to stop coming to church. He wants you to stop praying. He wants you to stop sharing God with other people. And he wants to tell you you're too busy to serve God. Amen? Let's not be fooled by that. And a king or government can enslave us, a man physically, but it can never enslave us spiritually. Guys, again, when we said, hey, look, we're willing to go to jail, right? They can throw me in jail physically, me, Dave, Josh, Tim. But the bottom line is they cannot take away what we have spiritually in our devotion to God, right? They can't affect that and they can't affect it to you. You guys make that decision and that choice. Amen? Point number three, we must make sure to use our gifts and our talents for the Lord. Parents and the church must encourage and use young people's talents for the Lord's purpose, or the world will try to repurpose those gifts for their purpose. <clears throat> Let me take a drink. So let's read verses three, 3 and 4. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles. Young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had the ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. Uh, just really quick, I'm going to cover what a eunuch means here. A lot of people, there's different commentaries on it, whether Daniel was uh, a eunuch in the sense that he was uh, castrated. Uh, eunuch in Hebrew means uh, it's sariz, sariz, occurring 45 times in the Old Testament. Wherever Sariz is used, the, refer, the word refers to an important person who is not necessarily castrated. So it's not always that they're castrated. The Greek translation is eunuchos. It means a chamberlain or the keeper. The keeper of the bedchamber of the eastern ruler. The bedchamber obviously was the harem that the king had his women. So they would overlook it. Uh, a, a, or it can also mean a castrated person. So it can mean that. Or one who voluntarily 
abstains from marriage. So guys, it has three different meanings here. The Bible doesn't tell us which one Daniel was. So I'm not going to read into the silence of the Bible. Amen? Verse 3, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't interested in all Israelites, if you notice. What was he interested in? He was interested in the children. He was interested in the young and the young leaders and future leaders and the noble and, and the royal. That's who he was interested in. He knew that the future of a nation, a kingdom, or a government, or a culture, or religion, or worship, or teaching, and the leadership of Israel fell into the hands of the youth. Who else believed and put this approach in? Do you guys know who else was interested in the youth in, in maintaining his power and his ideology and his kingdom and empire? Do you guys remember? Hitler. Someone said Hitler. Hitler. This is what he did, right, with the SS youth. He believed, hey, if we can indoctrinate the youth, it'll secure our nation and our ideology going forward. He had the Hitler Youth Brigade. Hitler knew indoctrinating that youth, again, ensured the future of Nazi Germany and his evil ideology. It says in verse 4, if you look at it, gifted in all wisdom was Daniel and his friends. They were gifted. They had knowledge and were quick to understand. Guys, they were gifted and had knowledge. They had talents and gifts given to them from God. Okay, and we know Daniel's gift, right, in dreams and prophecy. As parents and as the church, guys, we must make sure when we have kids who have gifts within the church and want to use them, that we give them an opportunity to use them, amen? And encourage them to use it. The gift God has given should be used for Jesus, amen? The the youth and the young people's gifts need to be used for the Lord's purpose because if they're not, the world will try and repurpose those gifts for its purpose. And we guys, we all know that. Oh, yeah, you can play guitar here. Come join this rock band. Oh, man, you're amazing at, you know, doing plays or reading or being in, come do this movie, right? Where there's 400 F words and, 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 and you know, and you're going to play someone who's cheating on their husband, whatever it may be, right, guys? They're going to use those gifts for the world's purpose. So Josh and I, as you know, we, we lead the youth uh, the youth group, the youth ministry. Josh is the youth pastor. I come alongside him and, and help him. Um, Guys, here's one thing, some of the things we do in the youth group. We teach them the word, the young people. We have taught them how to do an inductive Bible study like a pastor would prepare a message for the pulpit. We give them opportunities to do expositional teaching. Like on our Zoom calls, I remember one time, we told them each to choose two or three scriptures and break them down, give us the, give us the observation, the interpretation, and the application, and share it with the youth group. And, and they did, and they did a wonderful job. We have taught them to pray for one another. Do you know they run their own prayer ministry? Did you guys know that? The youth group has their own prayer ministry on Monday night. I think it's about 6, 6, 8, 6 p.m. And it's run by one of our youth. It, it's all their own thing. They send out the flock notes. They do it all. And you know how, and this is a surprise. There would be like sometimes 10 kids on that call. Do you know more kids show up to the youth prayer ministry than ours? Than our call? You know how many we had on the call last week? Two people. The youth has about 15 kids in it and 10 are showing up to pray every week. Guys, we need to be about prayer. But we taught them that because we're raising up future leaders of the church, amen? When we're all gone, who's going to lead the church? It's going to be these kids. Nebuchadnezzar knew that. The leader, uh, so then we have our own youth worship team for about the last year and a half. So they do their own worship. They do it in my living room. We have speakers. We have a, a mixer. We have everything we have here at my house. We practice every Wednesday night. We have six kids on the team and, two, and probably two more are going to be joining. Uh, just the other day, um, we explained what it means to worship and what it means to be on the worship team and why they were chosen to do worship. I'm more interested in character than I am talents. 
Because I've had youth kids say, hey, this kid plays an amazing guitar and he came to youth group once, but he'll come, you know, let him, he can do worship for us. No, he can't. He can't do worship for us. I need to know he has a strong relationship with God. I want people up there with godly character that are accountable and then they will lead worship. Amen? Amen. You're leading people into the presence of God. An intimate thing, a personal thing. These, that's what these guys are doing up here. <clears throat> so we always have the boys in youth group start off the youth group in prayer. We have the men do it. You know, because the men need to lead in the church, amen? The men need to lead in their homes, amen? Amen. We have the boys explain at the front of the class. Well, me and Josh do the class over here on Sunday mornings. We pick a, a young man to come up and pray for the group to tell people what prayer is and why we should pray. And then he breaks them off into prayer groups so they can pray for each other. Why? Because we want to raise up young godly men. So one day, the young women out there will have a godly man as an opportunity to marry. But if we don't raise godly men, young women, who are you going to find to marry? We need godly men in the church. Amen? So we have... Um, when we set up, we always have the boys do all the heavy lifting, right? Because uh, all the days of your life, right, you'll sweat by your brow and labor and toil in the soil, amen? We tell them that all the time. <clears throat> and we need, we need to be a servant of all. When we eat, we have the boys. Uh, the boys always know the girls go first. They always go first and we go last. Josh and I have both of them have, Josh and I have both taken them through multiple apologetic videos on Thursday night. We do a lot of apologetics, <clears throat> Charlie Campbell videos and things like that. Because, and they say, oh man, we're watching that video again. And like, why is there evil in the world if, if God's a loving God? You know? And they complain because they're like, it's the third time we've seen the video. <clears throat> the bottom line though is I tell them, hey, look, when you go off into the world, when you go off into Babylon and they try to re-indoctrinate you, you need to understand how to defend your faith. Amen. Adults, we need to also use our gifts. Are we just using them for worldly things? Men, women, did you bury your talents in the dirt? Did God leave you with all these talents? And when he gets back and he goes, hey, what have you done with your gift of playing guitar? What have you done with your gift to do technology? What have you done with your gift of hospitality? Whatever it is, even if it's not here at this church, serve God and answer your calling. Don't run from it. Use your talents that when God comes back, you'll have produced something, right? That's eternal. Because guys, with your talents, sometimes someone will walk in that door or walk in, we don't have a door, do we? <laughs> We're outside, but someone will come, right? And you may be the person who notices they're new to church and you love on them and you welcome them. And they may say, I didn't even come back because of the pastor. I didn't come back to the worship. I came back because I was loved on by this couple. And then they give their life to the Lord. And then they go out and share Jesus four or five months later and someone else gives their life to the Lord and comes to church. You see what I mean? You're making an impact on eternity, guys, by using whatever your talent is for the Lord. Amen. Praise God. Amen. Uh, many times people in the congregation have knowledge and the skill to serve, but they're not willing to sacrifice the time and make a commitment to God. Look, I've been doing, um, I've led in ministries for about 18 years, right? And one of the things... Um, um, I always, when people come up to me, they go, hey, look, I want to serve in this ministry. And I said, amen, praise God. And I'm really happy. And I tell them, they go, maybe, maybe it could be audiovisual. And I said, okay, well, you have to be here at 8 a.m. And I need a six-month commitment for you to serve. I need you to pray about it and come back and let me know after you pray for seven days. And a lot of times I never hear from them again. Because the commitment is you have to be here at 8 a.m. And you have to commit to be here every 
Sunday it may be, for six months. You guys see what I'm saying? Guys, commit to God. Commit it all to God. Make that choice. If you've been a person who's been running from the Lord, don't run anymore. Amen? Serving is just a reasonable service, guys, for what Jesus has already done. We read this in Romans 12.1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies. Here it is, guys. A living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is a reasonable service. It's just reasonable for what Christ already did on the cross. Right, guys? We can never repay Jesus. We can never repay him for what he's done for us. But we can try. We can sure try. <clears throat> the king, now if you look at Nebuchadnezzar, the king wanted them to serve in the king's palace. So you're going to serve one master. It's either going to be Jesus or you're going to serve the world. It's one or the other. You're going to be serving something, right? So the bottom line is Nebuchadnezzar realized that. I said, let's get them ready and they're going to serve me. Will it be the world's king we serve or King Jesus? Serve with our wisdom, our time, and our talents. Point number three, we must make sure to use our gifts and our talents for the Lord. Parents in the church must encourage and use the young people's talents and our own for the Lord's purpose or the world will repurpose their gifts for its purpose. And then point number four on your outline, are we close enough to God that we influence the world around us? Or is our relationship with God so lukewarm that the world is influencing us? Only a devoted and unwavering relationship with Jesus will give us the power to impact the world for Christ. Amen? So in verse 5, let's read, And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. So in verse 5, Nebuchadnezzar offers them meat, wine that the king would eat and drink, and it, was, and, and it would have been at this time, guys, it's not, like, it's not like us, right? He's offering them the best of the food that Babylon has to offer. He's offering the best drink that Babylon has to offer. And they're going to be in luxury sitting around in the king's palace. It's not like us today, right? Where, I mean, it was hard to get a steak back then, you know what I mean? It's not like we could go to Costco right now and we could just buy 50 steaks, right? Big old economy package. It wasn't like that for them. It was something very special. So in a way, he's enticing them. They could be persuaded. It's, and the king is saying, in a way, he's like, hey, look, we'll take care of you. You don't have to worry about anything. Just leave it to Babylon and just leave it to your leaders and just leave it to the government to give you everything you need here. So you don't no longer have to rely on your God. You can rely on us to take care of you. That's what he's basically doing and saying. He offered them wine. And you know what? And here's the thing with the wine. And our government does that sometimes too, right? We live in places where we'll take care of everything for you. You don't have to do anything anymore, right? But when we take that, something, now we're dependent upon them. Are we still going to be dependent upon God? And that's what Nebuchadnezzar was doing. So he offered them wine. And I look at it this way. If you want to skew someone's judgment, get them drunk, right? Give them some alcohol and let's see if they make a wise decision. I bet you when I've never made a wise decision yet. Right Or not yet, I'm not drinking you guys. I'm not saying that on the pulpit. What I'm saying is back when I used to before Christ, never made a wise decision uh, from drink, from drinking um, and getting high. So look, Ephesians 5, 15 through 18, we read this. And I'm using the New Living Translation. Sometimes I use different translations because they get the point across a little bit more simpler and more powerful. So be careful how you live. This is what it says about alcohol. So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. And here it is. Don't be drunk with wine. And I love, because that'll ruin your life. Okay? Don't be drunk with wine. That'll ruin your life. 
Guys, when, when I used to get high and I used to get drunk before Christ, um, and again, I can't remember ever doing anything wise while I was in that situation. I don't know, and I'm sure all of you can say the same thing. And here's one thing. I've been sober now, guys, for about 20 years, and I realize I do everything better sober, okay? Life is so much better sober. And I remember I used to play in a band when I was younger, and, and all these guys would be like, yo, bro, we're such better musicians when, you know, we're not sober. And, and I, but the problem was, guys, we're a bunch of scientists in there. We had never been sober to know if we would do something better sober, right? That's the thing. It, it, in a way, it was just foolishness. It was foolishness. And I remember when I became sober and I gave my life to God and I no longer needed that and I would go to play my guitar and I would write songs, I did it better. I did it better. I was clear-headed and, 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 and I was still creative because God created us in his image and he is the greatest creator of all. Amen? I could still create music and create things that were just amazing and I enjoyed them more. Again, created in his image, and he's the greatest creator of all. So do you think we'll be great creators? Do we need that? We don't need that. Amen? So, and then in 1 Peter 5, 8, we read this about being sober. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Be sober and be ready for what the devil's trying to take. Proverbs 23, 30 through 35. Again, New Living Translation. This one I, I, I really like. It is the one who, he's talking about again, drinking. It is the one who spends long hours in the tavern trying out new drinks. Don't gaze at the wine, seeing how red it is, how it sparkles in the cup, how smoothly it goes down. For in the end, it bites like a poisonous snake. It stings like a viper. You will see hallucinations and you will say crazy things. You will stagger like a sailor tossed at sea, clinging to a swaying mass. And you will say, they hit me, but I didn't even feel it. I didn't even know it that they even beat me up. When I wake up, and, and when I wake up, um, I can't wait to see the day to have another drink. Right? This is, who want, this is not how we want to live, but King Nebuchadnezzar is trying to get them into this state. But Daniel in his wisdom, we'll see later, and for those of you who know, obviously the book of Daniel, many have read it. He doesn't bite. He doesn't partake. He knew better. And at the end of verse 5, if you look at it, so guys, I guess the exhortation is you don't need that stuff. You don't need that stuff. We just need God and his amazing creation around us, and his amazing thing that he wants us to experience, okay? In the end of verse 5, it says, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time, they might serve before the king. And if you remember, at the end of verse 4, we see the king wanted what with the young men? To see them taught their language and their nation's literature. To conform them by teaching a new language and a new history of the world and the Babylonian perspective of the world. And basically, these kids, here's what Nebuchadnezzar was doing. I'm going to send you to the best university you have ever seen in your life. And it's a full ride scholarship. You don't even have to play basketball. Okay, I'm going to give it all to you guys. Don't worry about it, right? Now, here's the thing. He was going to teach them, right, how to scribe science, astrology, mythology, social studies, arts, mathematics, religion, and pagan worship, right? Guys, they had all these things in the ancient world. He was going to wow them with, look at this knowledge I'm going to give you. Like universities today, he was going to indoctrinate these kids just like the universities do today, amen? Don't they do that? They teach your kids, uh, 
Teach your kids, though, guys. We got to do the opposite. That's why we have to teach our kids, and Josh and I do this in the youth group, apologetics. We have to teach them how to defend their faith. We have to teach them, hey, if the world's filled with evil and suffering, why is God a loving God? What are the tough questions about hell? What do Hindus believe? What do Muslims believe? What do Mormons believe? I've took, taken our youth group. They, they can tell you. Uh, Nathan can tell you. Dakota can tell you. Leah, how many times have you seen that video? I'm, oh, man, Dad, we've seen him seven times. Are you doing Josh going to do it again this week? Right? But because we want them to not waver. 80% of them will walk away from their faith by the time they hit ninth grade of high school. Did you guys know that? And we tell the youth group that all the time. So guys, in inscriptions and documents and letters written during these 43 years of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, uh, to give you an idea of the power of wealth of Babylon and this university that he would send these kids to, here's some interesting facts from the historian uh, Herodotus. Um, about Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. It was written in the Herodotus history book, uh, I don't know, labeled 1, 178 through 186 passage. Babylon was in the form of a square. To give you an idea of Babylon, in the form of a square, it was 14 miles wide and a square on each side. With an, and so it had this enormous magnitude. There was a brick wall around Babylon that was 56 miles long, 300 feet high, 25 feet thick, and another wall 75 feet behind the first wall. And the wall extended 35 feet below into the ground. That's how sturdy and solid it was. There were 250 towers that were 450 feet high. Imagine that as they're looking out for any enemy that tried to, to siege them. A wide and deep moat encircled the whole city. So there was a moat around it. The Euphrates River also flowed through the middle of this city. The city actually had ferry boats and a half-mile-long drawbridge, and the, draw, the drawbridges closed at night. It had the hanging gardens of Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, one of the wonders of the ancient worlds. Water was raised from the rivers by a hydraulic pump. And you say, how did a hydraulic pump get in the ancient world? Guys, it's simple. Like the pyramids, the aliens built it. No? Look, there's no aliens in the Bible. Okay, the Bible doesn't mention, I don't speak in the science about it, but there is dinosaurs. So if you come on Thursday night, we'll be doing Job uh, chapter 15, 16. And if you keep coming, we'll get to chapter 40 and we'll see the dinosaurs. Amen? So guys, but also there were eight massive gates led to the inner city, a hundred brass gates. Streets were paved with stone uh, slabs that were three, foot, three feet in square. A great tower of ziggurat stood there and 53 temples, including the great temple of Marduk, 180 altars to Ishtar, a golden image of Baal, and a golden table. Both this image of Baal and this golden table weighed over 50,000 pounds of solid gold. Okay? If you want to wow someone with your wealth, Nebuchadnezzar did that because Nebuchadnezzar was all about himself, and that was one of his main problems. It was all about him. And he spent all his wealth on him and not the people, and didn't want to bless others. There were two golden lions, solid gold human figures that stood 18 feet high. Nebuchadnezzar's palace was considered to be the most magnificent building erected on earth at that time. Okay? So it would have been an enticing place to be in, to be in the king's palace, to be offered the best of the food, to be offered the best education you could possibly get to serve in. They could, you see, he was trying to persuade them, and they could have been, but they were, we know they were without compromise. The question is, and here, how did, how did they stand in, in God and, and not compromise and not give in? Daniel had to be diligent enough in his youth seeking God. 
hearing God, loving God, studying the scriptures, praying, sacrifice, meditating on God to change the world around him rather than the world in Babylon changing him. Guys, it started in his youth. Amen. That's why the kids are important. That's why when we go teach in children's ministry and it's a five-year-old and I teach, I got the opportunity about three weeks ago, my wife needed a teacher in the third to fifth grade class. I said, I'll do that. And then Josh taught the next week and I taught youth. And when I was down there, they didn't know how, and some of them might be your kids. I don't know. They didn't know how to pray. They didn't know why we pray, what prayers. So I taught them the Lord's prayer and I showed them what the different parts of the Lord's prayer meant. And it wasn't to say it repetitively, but to use that as a guideline to talk to God. And their faces lit up. And I was on fire, guys. I was excited. I came out and I told Josh, I go, bro, it felt good to be in children's ministry. Man, these kids were listening. It was awesome. And kids really challenge you. They'll ask you crazy questions too as well. And you have to know the answers. But the bottom line, guys, is I was on fire and I felt so much joy teaching them. Guys, the kids are important. They're so important. Amen? Amen. So guys, point number four, are we close enough to God like Daniel that we influence the world around us? Or is our relationship with God so lukewarm that the world is actually influencing us? Only a devoted and unwavering relationship, guys, with Jesus will give us the power to impact the world for Christ as it gave Daniel the power to impact Babylon, as we know, as he became a leader there and went up the ranks and um, changed Nebuchadnezzar. We got, you guys know that, right? He changed Nebuchadnezzar to claim God. Daniel's God is the most high. Amen? That's how much he impacted King Nebuchadnezzar. Praise God. And this King Nebuchadnezzar, if you remember, well, I'm going to tell you, and some of you may have not read this, this is the guy who wants to chop people into little pieces if they can't tell him a, you know, the, uh, his, what his dream even was. This is the same guy who's like, I turn up the fire and throw them in there and let me watch them burn alive. And this is the guy saying, oh, Daniel, your God is the most high. He impacted Babylon. Amen? The impact of the world. Point number five, um, our identity is not in the name we've been given, but in the name we praise, serve, and believe in, the name of Jesus. Verse six, now from among those sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them, the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Now let's look at what these names meant. Daniel, if you remember, is, is God is my judge or God's judge. Changed to Belteshazzar, uh, Beltus protect the king. It's referring to a pagan god. Beltus protect the king and favored by Bel, Baal. Hananiah means Jah has favored or God has favored. What they changed his name to was Shadrach, command of Aku, again, a pagan god. Mishael meant in Hebrew, who is, who is what God is, changed to Meshach, who is what Aku is, guest of the king. Azariah means Jehovah has helped. They changed his name to Abednego, the servant of Nebu, which is where Nebuchadnezzar got his name. Nebuchadnezzar comes from the service of Nebu. It's obvious Nebuchadnezzar wanted to completely change their identity. He wanted them to have nothing to do with their identity. It must have been completely heartbreaking to have their names when, they, when these... Uh, when these um, these Gentiles in this Babylonian kingdom would probably call them by their names to know that their other names were being forgotten. Change their names were representing pagan gods in opposition to their own God, to the true God. Every day they had to hear and be reminded that they were now captives in a foreign land through the Babylonian names. 
Guys, right now too, the way the world, we're in a foreign land. Remember, this is not our home. We're just passing through and we're visiting. Our home is to come in with Jesus Christ. Amen? Names can really affect a person's perspective in life. When I was young, I hated my name. And, I'm, um, um, and here's the thing. I wore really thick glasses when I was young. I was short. Um, I wasn't as good looking as I am now. I know many of you are going, what, you weren't good looking? Oh, no way. We don't believe it. No, I really wasn't this good looking. I digress. Humility, right? I digress. Humility, Lord. The bottom line, though, guys, is all these things affected how I felt about myself and my self-esteem. And I used to have very low self-esteem when I was younger. And then my name just added to it. I have a really nerdy name. I'm not going to tell you what it is. I know you thought I was. So let's move on. No, I'm just kidding. My name is Douglas Alfred Buzian. Alfred, right? And uh, so I never really liked my name because I'm half Mexican. And my mom was full-blooded Mexican. And on that side of my family, they all used to make fun of me because I was the only one with basically a Caucasian name. Like all my cousins were Juan and Gilbert and Raymond and Ronnie and everything like that. So they would constantly tease me. And, and so I never liked my name. I never did. So we can have an identity, right? We can really have an identity with who we are in our name. And I had that identity. Think about black slavery. Many who had to take the name of their slave owners. Many descendants of uh, those slaves still carry those family names today as we know not knowing even their original names and their original family names. Or a family name can be royal, right? It can be royalty. It can be power, which might have been the case here with Daniel and these young Jewish boys. It can come with power, wealth. A name can also bring you privilege. These were, uh, na- these were men, these Jewish boys, nobles, and, and their names might have had genealogy within Jewish history. It might have been even so important in Jewish history, their names, but that was taken away was taken away and removed. But guys, here's the thing. Here's the exhortation. A name's just a name, right? That's what the point here is on the outline. A name is just a name. When I was young on my mom's side of the family, and here's the thing with your name though, sometimes you can, you can gravitate towards it and hold on to it. In my mom's family, I'll never forget, they, my mom, they, w- they would talk really loud and, and pretty much yell at each other. In my household, we would yell at each other constantly when I grew up. It wasn't like we talked. We just yelled at each other from room to room. And, my, and then we'd get angry very easily. And when we'd get angry, my mom would always say, oh, mijo, that's just how we are. We're Alvarados. That's just how the Alvarados are. It's not like we're doing anything wrong. We're just loud and we're mad. <laughs> right? and, and the thing is, guys, is no. Because before I was an Alvarado, I'm a Christian. Right? Before you're a Killian, you're a Christian. Before you're a Chambers, you're a Christian. Right? Before you're a Beck, you're a Christian. Before you're a Johnston, we're Christians. Amen? That's our identity. They might have changed Daniel's name, but we know, and we will see in the book of Daniel, they could not change his identity in God. They could enslave him physically, could not change him spiritually. Amen? So regardless of your circumstances, you shouldn't change your relationship with God. Whatever you end up going through in this life, going forward, never let go and change who you are in Christ. Amen? Be the same. Be unwavering. Have that foundation. Don't build it on sand, right? But build it on the rock, Jesus Christ, the cornerstone of which the church is built. Amen? You know, one of the things in children's ministry, I'm going to close up with this, but one of the things in children's ministry, I always tell the little kids, I, I love kids. 
And I would tell them, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? And you know, they're four, five, six years old, seven, eight years old. What do you want to be when you grow up? And they always have an answer like, well, I want to be a fireman. I want to go to the moon, you know, whatever it may be. I want to be a police officer. You know what I would tell them? No, be a Christian. Don't you want to be a Christian? It's amazing to be a follower of Christ. And you know, then they go, yeah, I want to be a Christian. Do you love Jesus? Yeah, I love Jesus, right? Amen, guys. Let's be Christians. Let's be followers of Christ and Christendom. We must continue to always be servants of God. Let everyone know you are his servants and his servants only like Daniel. Amen. So the, uh, again, our identity, the last point, is not in the name we've been given, but in the name we praise and in the name we serve and in the name we believe in and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.